Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Today is Tuesday, December 10th, 2019. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, the House representatives holding Donald Trump accountable for trying to ask a foreign government to interfere in a U.S. election by investigating one of his rivals. We'll tell you about the articles of impeachment. Only the third time in American history that the House actually pursuing these articles. A group of senators led by Kamala Harris is calling on Trump to fire his senior advisor, Stephen Miller, for being a racist. Also, billionaire Tom Steyer is going for the black male vote in South Carolina. He, overall, though, he's placing now third among black voters. We'll talk to the Associated Press reporter, Meg Kennard, to find out what's happening in the Palmetto State. Also, Haitian leaders testified before the House Foreign Affairs Committee today about a country in crisis. One of those leaders will join us right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered. And African-Americans are the only group making less than they did a decade ago. I thought Donald Trump saying things were going well for the blacks. 
We'll break it down. And jury selection has begun in the Maryland hate crime case of a man who was hit to graduate from HBCU, but a white supremacist killed him. And Bill Cosby's appeal has been denied in his sexual assault case. And finally, the House passed the amended Future Act today. Folks, it's time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin on the filter. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. Democrats introduced two articles of impeachment today against Donald Trump alleging abuse of power and obstruction of Congress regarding his interactions with Ukraine. Here is today's announcement. Over the last several months, the investigative committees of the House have been engaged in an impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump's efforts to solicit foreign interference in the 2020 elections. Efforts that compromised our national security and threatened the integrity of our elections. Throughout this inquiry, he has attempted to conceal the evidence from Congress and from the American people. Our president holds the ultimate public trust. When he betrays that trust and puts himself before country, he endangers the Constitution, he endangers our democracy, and he endangers our national security. The framers of the Constitution prescribed a clear remedy for presidents who so violate their oath of office. That is the power of impeachment. Today, in service to our duty to the Constitution and to our country, the House Committee on the Judiciary is introducing two articles of impeachment charging the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, with committing high crimes and misdemeanors. The first article is for abuse of power. It is an impeachable offense for the president to exercise the powers of his public office to obtain an improper personal benefit while ignoring or in injuring the national interest. That is exactly what President Trump did when he solicited and pressured Ukraine to interfere in our 2020 presidential election thus damaging our national security, undermining the integrity of the next election, and violating his oath to the American people. These actions, moreover, are consistent with President Trump's previous invitations of foreign interference in our 2016 presidential election. And when he was caught, when the House investigated and opened an impeachment inquiry, President Trump engaged in unprecedented, categorical, and indiscriminate defiance of the impeachment inquiry. This gives rise to the second article of impeachment for obstruction of Congress. Here, too, 
we see a familiar pattern in President Trump's misconduct. A president who declares himself above accountability, above the American people, and above Congress's power of impeachment, which is meant to protect against threats to our democratic institutions, is a president who sees himself as above the law. We must be clear, no one, not even the president, is above the law. Now some would argue, why don't you just wait? Why don't you just wait until you get these witnesses the White House refuses to produce? Why don't you just wait until you get the documents the White House refuses to turn over? And people should understand what that argument really means. It has taken us eight months to get a lower court ruling that Don McGahn has no absolute right to defy Congress. Eight months for one court decision. If it takes us another eight months to get a second court or maybe a Supreme Court decision, people need to understand that is not the end of the process. It comes back to us and we ask questions because he no longer has absolute immunity and then he claims something else that his answers are privileged and we have to go to back to court for another eight or 16 months. The argument, why don't you just wait, amounts to this. Why don't you just let him cheat in one more election? Why not let him cheat just one more time? Why not let him have foreign help just one more time? That is what that argument amounts to. The president's misconduct goes to the heart of whether we can conduct a free and fair election in 2020. It is bad enough for a candidate to invite foreign interference in our political process, but it is far more corrosive for a president to do so and to abuse his power to make it so. Despite everything we have uncovered, the president's misconduct continues to this day, unapologetically and right now. As we saw, when he stood on the White House lawn and he was asked, what did you want in that July 25th call? And he said the answer was a simple one. And not just a simple one on July 25th, but a simple one today, and that is he still wants Ukraine to interfere in our election to help his campaign. Joining us right now, Mustafa Santiago Lee, former senior advisor for the Environmental Justice, EPA. Also, Kelly Bethea, communication strategist, and Malik Abdul, Republican strategist. Uh, Mustafa, I'll start with you. Here's a president who has consistently lied to the American people. Some 14,000 lies that he has told. He lies about lies. He has lied about the transcript. He said, read the transcript. But they actually didn't release the actual transcript. Even in what was released, you hear him trying to hear them investigate Biden. But I would say the, the biggest thing is this is a man who refuses to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. He believes that he can do whatever he wants to do. He has said anybody has immunity. Even Corey Lewandowski, who has never even worked for the White House. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you can exert a privilege for somebody who's never even worked for your administration. He has refused to comply any subpoenas with Congress on any issue, not just Ukraine, not just Russia, but it come, not just when it comes to taxes, on anything. What he has basically said is, y'all have absolutely no right to question me whatsoever. Democrats have no choice but to hold this man accountable. Yeah, it's a gangster mentality. It's a privilege mentality. It's all those things wrapped up where, you know, and that's the reason they're hitting him now with obstruction of Congress and, and the abuse of power. 
And you know what's amazing, Roland, is that I spent 24 years in federal service. I engage with folks in and outside of our country. And if myself or anyone else had participated in this type of behavior, we would have been fired. You know, when we ran the grant programs and the contracts, and if I had reached over to somebody who was expecting to get paid for something and said, you know what, I need you to do me a favor, I would have been fired. And those are the types of things that folks need to really be focusing on because if you were an everyday person, this would not be acceptable. So you are the leader of our country. There's no way that this should ever be acceptable. Kelly, he has said repeatedly, I can do what I want to do. Donald Trump does not believe that the uh, that the um, that the congressional uh, that Congress that they should oversee anything that he does. Yeah, so I think I uh, touched on this a little bit uh, last week in that in order for our government to work, all three branches of government actually have to respect each other and. Right now, the executive branch is just not respecting the other two branches of government, which is why it's a mess. Um, the reason why these articles of impeachment um, were administered, as opposed to the other uh, things that we've been hearing for the past, what, two, three months, quid pro quo, obstruction, um, things of that nature, I think it was more along the line, the reasoning was more along the lines of what can we prove now? Um, without, you know, further interference from the White House, a branch of government that is not uh, respecting the legislation. Um, I also want people to remember that this is an indictment. We still have another step to go um, regarding uh, the Senate, and that's when, honestly, the determining factor as to whether he's actually going to be removed from office is going to be coming from the Senate. So impeachment articles, great, great first step. Um, but I'm, I'm anticipating some more uh, hurdles down the line, especially when it comes on the Senate side. Uh, Melek, how can the Trump administration call this process unconstitutional when it's literally written in the Constitution? Well, second of all, second question, um, how can you completely ignore Congress on any issue to say, we will answer, we will ignore any subpoena, I will extend executive privilege to cover anybody, including folks who have never even worked for the government. Uh, and so therefore, Congress, you have absolutely no right. The law even says that, the law says that if Congress requests the, the taxes, of the tax returns of any American, the IRS turn them over. Trump says, not me, I'm above the law. So at what point, at what point does he get the message that he is not above the law. Well, I don't think that, you know, Trump can say and his, you know, we all can say, people who support him, we can say whatever we want um, about what the Constitution allows. Uh, this is a constitutional process. It shouldn't be any surprise that the president is critical of a process that's critical or investigating him. I think that... No, no, but he says it's totally unconstitutional. Well, of course, Trump is going to say things like that. So he's, he's so he's lying. Well, Trump is going to say things like that and he will No, no, no I'm asking you. Like is that. he when Donald it's, Trump it's says It's not for, from no. everything that I've read that there is nothing unconstitutional about this process. Right, because it's constitutional. I mean, uh, the constitution allows for a it lays out a process mm -hmm. where a president can be impeached uh, and if impeached, it goes for trial in the Senate. I mean, it's right there in the document. Yeah, it does. And but your question 
you know, you had raised the point about whether or not this is something that, you know, how can a president just totally ignore, um, you know, congressional subpoenas and things like that. I think we probably saw in the case with Barack Obama, the Fast and Furious case, where his administration refused to turn over documents. Actually, that's not, actually, actually that's not what I said. That's not what I said. But that's... that's but that's, actually, that's not what I said. You said... What I said was, how can a president... Refuse to not, comply with, with the congressional subpoena? No, with any subpoena. Okay. On but, any topic, on any request. Well, I, I don't know what, what you're using to gauge that on any request. Well, I'm sorry. Hold, but, hold up, hold up, hold up. But if you... Hold up. But if, our, if the audience would like to know whether or not this is something that administrations have done in the past, then I, we would have to say yes, show, because show, the Barack show, Obama administration up, show, show just me, did this. Show me where the Obama administration... Refused to it, turn it, over it, documents it, regarding no, no, the Fast and Furious case. One second. Show me where the Obama administration on multiple investigations... Multiple investigations. Well, I, I don't have those multiple instances, but I have one no, 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 that the federal actually, judge that's what actually... I said, though. So if you're going to say what I said, that's what I said. Well, it's but important I... to talk about what the federal judge actually ruled as far as the Obama administration, where it forced the administration to turn over those Fast and Furious documents. Did they? That it, yes, yeah. they did. No, after... No, but, but here's my question. They did. They did. Does after the, the does, federal does, judge... Does the law state... Does the law state that if Congress requests the tax records of any American, they must be turned over? I think the law does say that. And Trump has said, I'm above the law, I'm not turning them over. But I don't know. Did, did a court rule on whether or not he was supposed no, I'm to sorry, turn over? No, I'm sorry, but there's a law already. So why do you yeah. need a court to rule if there's already well, a law? Well, because it's the, the same reason that we're actually, um, the conversation about John Bolton. Remember, people are, you know, pulling their hair out saying that John Bolton actually refused to testify. What John Bolton said, what he asked was, he asked a federal judge to issue a ruling on whether or not he could testify, and that's where we are now. So, 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 the, what, you, so what they're trying to do is say, fine, a federal judge must tell us we must. So basically what they're saying is, we want a federal judge to tell us we must comply with the law. Well, that isn't that what they have the right to do? I think that's that's actually what... Even though the law remember, is already the law. If, if, you, if you remember what Jonathan Turley was um, referring to last week, and he was talking about the process, the actual, the White House, you know, they have every right to go to the court to get clarification on this issue so of executive so, privilege. So, the, so you're saying that in a case of executive privilege, how can the White House assert executive privilege for somebody who's never even worked for the White House. Well, the federal judge who issued the ruling on McGahn... Um, I no, think no, no, he... no, 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 no. McGahn was a White House counsel. Right. And... I'm talking about Corey Lewandowski, who has never worked for the White House. I... How, can, how can Donald Trump assert that I can extend privilege to anybody? Well, I don't what know... What he's literally saying is that if Malik is get called... If you get called to Congress, if you get called before Congress... And about a conversation you had with Trump, Trump is saying, no, executive privilege. Well, I... Corey Lewandowski wasn't connected to this case, so... No, I no, 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 no. Corey Lewandowski, when he went before Congress, really? Donald Trump said, sent White House lawyers who sat behind him... Tell me if I'm wrong, Mustafa. You're right. Sat behind him and said he cannot answer any questions about any conversation with Donald Trump because Donald Trump has asserted executive privilege. How do you assert executive privilege for somebody who's never worked for you? So you're, you're saying that Corey Lewandowski actually showed up for the hearing? When Corey Lewandowski showed up, mm -hmm. 
Corey Lewandowski said, oh, I can't talk about that because uh, the White House is asserted well, exactly. Well, that, that still seems like something that a court should actually decide, which is no, the no, no, point. No, 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 no. Wait a minute, hold up, Mustafa. I'm, 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 how but, does a court decide that, oh, this applies when he's never worked for the White House? Okay, but my point still about when I was mentioning Don McGahn, that what the court ruled is that the Trump administration does not have blanket immunity. No, 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 no. But it's my whole point. The I, court, the court, I no, get no, no. that one point no, about no, no, no. Corey Lewandowski. You, you go into court, you go into court mm -hmm. for a guy who worked for you is one thing. But to assert executive privilege, Mustafa, they didn't somebody go to court who on never court even Lewandowski. worked for you shows you right. how much, how thuggish they are when, in, in terms of we don't have to answer Jack, we will do what we want to do. Right. This is unprecedented. I mean, in the five presidents that I worked for before, no one ever tried anything like this. And that's the reason that they're finding themselves in the situation that they are. Now, the point is that the folks in the Senate have to actually do the right thing. And we, the people, have to get engaged in this process. I'm still amazed that we have marches for everything. We have marches for the environment, which is important. We have marches for gun violence, which is important. We've got to have people out here actually marching for our democracy. And there should be millions of people in the street when this moves to the Senate to say that we are going to hold you accountable if you do not do the right thing. And that's how we hold them accountable in the White House for this rogue administration. And I don't throw that a word around loosely based upon the actions that they've been moving forward on and how they've been approaching the law. They have no respect for the law. Right. Well, uh, I, now, I they'll utilize, they'll try and utilize yeah. the law. Kelly, I, I, and, 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 that's, and that's the real deal here. They don't have respect for the law. No. To sit here in the middle of this whole deal and it is undeniable that they wanted Ukraine and held up this relief, this money to Ukraine, to investigate the Bidens, and to have Trump's thuggish lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, mm -hmm. still going to Ukraine. He's there now, isn't I he? I mean, bottom line is, they don't yeah, care. And the reality is, the founders set this up specifically for a person like Trump. Mm -hmm. For somebody who ignores and flouts the law to say, the only way to hold them accountable is the impeachment process. But my... What's funny to me with this entire situation is even coming out of Trump's camp, no one's denying what actually happened. No one in his camp is saying that phone call didn't exist. No one in his camp is saying any of those things. They're just like, so what? Right. So what? So... And, and to... Um, Melick's point regarding the Obama administration and Fast and Furious, even with that whole debacle, the Obama administration still abided by the law. Yes, they exercised their right to go to a court. Um, keep in mind, Obama was a constitutional lawyer before he became president. He's a constitutional law professor. Like, his entire uh, career outside of community organizing was you know, rooted in constitutional law. So he knew what he was doing. Um, and there was a question regarding whether that was constitutional, that he had to overturn it. Whether that ruling was, you know, good or not is debatable, but the fact of the matter is, he still listened to the court. And after the court gave their ruling, he did what the court said to do. Right. So, again, back to my earlier point of 
three branches of government respecting each other in order for this democracy to work. The Obama administration did that, regardless of whether, you know, you feel like he made mistakes in his, in his administration. He still abided by the law, and he upheld the Constitution thoroughly through all eight years of his, uh, of, of his uh, presidency. Well, what Obama did, um, you, you, yes, Obama did, his administration did turn over those documents, but he did that, I think it was probably about after three years, which is when the federal judge made the ruling, forcing them to turn over the documents. So, yes, the Obama administration did turn over those documents years after Congress had subpoenaed Because them. that's how long it took for a ruling right. to come so, down. Which, is, which, which connects to my point that I'm making, that the Trump administration, they had every right. Um, but um, the court said, hand over the documents. So I asked right. this, qu this question but years Mellon. Mellon, down Mellon, this is real simple. Did Donald Trump ask Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden? It sounds like he did. And it was nothing and, perfect about the call. And, that and, and was that had. wrong? Yeah. And why were Republicans, though, unwilling to own up to that why do they act like it's no big deal? Is it, is it wrong for a president to ask a foreign entity for help in investigating a political rival? Yes, it is. The question is whether and, or not that's something that should be impeachable. Well, here's the, well no. Here's, first of all, the Constitution defines that Congress, the House, can, determines can, that. And can they can... That a misdemeanor or... High crimes or misdemeanor. It, it could be anything that they actually say that it is. Right. But, so, but, 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 but you admit what he did was wrong. Well... I, I've, I've always said that the president shouldn't have actually made that ask. Right. Well, for, well, and no, many but, Republicans... But, but it's a lot of Republicans, though, many, don't even want to own up to that even being a fact. Well, we know how politics works. So whether it's Donald well, Trump I mean, just... or any other president, the, the question before the American people is whether or not we're moving towards this in the Senate. My answer is I'm pretty sure that that's not going to happen. But as we're seeing with the polls in all of the battleground states, that the, the, the fervor, the interest, the support for impeachment is actually declining. In those in those battleground states, First as far all, as the Democrats are concerned, here's a piece. At last time I checked, when I read the Constitution. It says nothing about battleground states. Right. What it says is but that. It's a, but no, that's no, no, a no, political one second, process. One second. One second. What impeachment it says, is one a political one process. Second. What it says is that how do you hold the president accountable? Mm -hmm. And I dare say this here: if you are a Democrat or Republican, what you should not do is say I'm going to take an action based upon what a poll says. What I'm going to do... Well, they do is that not, all the time. No, one second, excuse me. What I'm going to say is I'm going to take an action based upon what is right, what is fair, and is just, and because each person, when they are sworn in, they put their hand on the Bible or whatever they want to put their hand on mm -hmm. to say, I swear to uphold and protect the Constitution from enemies foreign and domestic. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, if you are an individual, whether you are a federal judge, whether you are a House member, a Senate member, or the President of the United States, if you are doing things that go against the Constitution of this United States, then there are going to be repercussions. Yeah, and that is the case here, and that's where it should be. And there should be Republicans who are looking at this from a country standpoint, not a party standpoint. Well, we do Final know, comment before I go yeah, to this. Well, we do know story. that this is, this is a total political process. And so what Democrats probably should have done, and I said this before, is that they probably should have moved towards censure, and they probably could have had more Republicans and even those Democrats who are there's questionable whether or not you're going to have those Democrats come on to support it. I honestly think that, yes, they're absolutely going to impeach the president of the House. That has been the plan since day one, before he even took office, of making him a one-term president. And so as far as the party, the Democratic Party, and, and, and um, you know, catering to that base who wants Trump um, to be kicked out of office, I think that they've, they've 
got it. This is a slam dunk. Prediction. Mustafa, go ahead. I was just going to say, let's remember when President Obama came in and leadership on the Senate side said we're going to do everything we can to stop him and to make sure that he is a on the night of his inauguration. President. That, that wasn't the, that wasn't on the night of his inauguration. Actually, it was. No, it, it wasn't. We've been through this on your show before. We've been through this on your show before, Roland, and that's just factually so we correct. Wasn't that was that was. I think that probably was referring to was it no September? It was the fall of that no, actually, year. It was no, a, no, actually, no, it, 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 it just was wasn't, Roland. It, was, your final it just wasn't. I just. I, I want people to disabuse the notion that we need to keep uh, referring to Obama during a yeah. Trump era. Like, but you have to. No, you don't. Actually, you don't. Yeah. But no, Kelly, you don't. Kelly, How, here's your point. Go ahead. Like you, you, first of all, you kind of can't compare Trump to the Obama administration because Trump hasn't done anything remotely parallel. But they're still presidents, though. Okay, that's why so we that's like... No, actually, if you want to compare Trump to anybody, you compare him to Nixon, mm. you compare him uh, to Clinton, you compare him to Andrew Johnson. And that is the three other presidents Who have where, been you, where you had either a formal impeachment process mm -hmm. or an impeachment inquiry. That's the deal. But you cannot compare to Obama because Obama wasn't impeached, wasn't did nothing, nothing even close to getting impeached. But the reality is... But he obstructed this, Congress, this, but, this, but this president... Okay. It's nonsense. Finish your... Well, facts don't lie. Finish your point, Kelly. Facts don't lie. Kelly, finish your point. <laughs> I, mm. Trump is not Obama. Right. We are not in the era of Obama anymore, unfortunately. We're not even in an era of Obama that we actually will be proud of at the end of the day. We are in a Trump era, and... Like you said, we can't compare him to Obama because Obama never did anything to this level that rose to the level of impeachment. Trump has. Obama didn't obstruct Congress. Trump did. Yes, Obama <laughs> didn't go over to Ukraine. That's what it does said. No. Go ahead and finish. No. Go ahead and finish. Obama didn't do any of the things that Republicans are denying that Trump actually did. So we can't draw those parallels because they don't exist. Um, that, that's my point. We All right, go folks, I want to go to this next story. Senator Kamala Harris led 26 of her colleagues in a letter sent to Donald Trump demanding the immediate removal of Stephen Miller from his position as a White House senior advisor. The letter reads, Dear Mr. President, we write to demand the immediate removal of Stephen Miller as your advisor. Recent reports confirm that he advanced white nationalist anti-immigrant ideologies, continuing to employ him as a senior architect your immigration policies ensures that those policies discriminate against individuals of color to advance white nationalist ideals. He must be removed. According to over 900 recently published emails dated March 4th, 2015 to June 27, 2016, Mr. Miller, who was an aide to Senator Jeff Sessions at the time, actively pressured editors and writers at far right website Breitbart to publish white nationalist articles. He drew his source material from known far right websites peddling conspiracy theories, including V-Dare and InfoWars. When Pope Francis called for the United States to welcome immigrants, Mr. Miller proposed a story on the Camp of the Saints, an overwhelmingly racist white genocide-themed novel detailing an immigrant invasion designed to wipe out the white race. The book dehumanizes immigrants by, among other things, painting them as physically grotesque. It is simply appalling that a senior advisor to the president advanced parallels between this book and contemporary events. Alarmingly, this was not an isolated incident. 
Rather, it is just one of a myriad highly disturbing communications. After a white nationalist killed nine African Americans during Bible study at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, Mr. Miller sought to protect Confederate iconography by targeting online shopping platforms that stopped selling Confederate flags. His emails regularly utilize verbiage commonly associated with the white nationalist movement, including the phrases, Great Replacement and New America. Mr. Mr. Miller's demonstrable white nationalist ideology has been directly translated into your administration's policies, which have been widely criticized for systematically targeting communities of color. The Muslim ban targeted individuals of color and caused chaos at U.S. airports around the country, wreaking havoc on the lives of countless individuals and families. The family separation policy tore children from their families, resulting in widely reported mistreatment and human rights abuses of immigrants in, in detention facilities nationwide. The rescission of Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA, has thrown the lives of hundreds of thousands of dreamers into chaos and instability. Mr. Miller has also reportedly advanced your administration's efforts to slash refugee admissions, limit asylum access for vulnerable populations, prevent extensions of temporary protected status to those granted safety from humanitarian crisis abroad, and disqualify immigrants who use public resources from receiving certain immigration benefits and their other issues that are in this email. So, Melek, the fact that these emails show Stephen Miller quoting white supremacist uh, journals, is it time for him to go? I doubt very seriously that the Trump administration will listen to anything. That's that not what Kamala I asked Harris. you. I'm asking you your position, not, not them. Is it time for Stephen Miller to go? Based upon the revelation of these emails showing his white nationalist ties language and what he used. Well, this is now the third time that we've had this discussion on your show, and my response is pretty much the same, is that Stephen Miller will have to answer for those those comments himself. No, I'm asking you. I'm asking you as somebody who I was a Republican. I, I would have been... The, the emails, first of all, the it emails... Has nothing, well, for, my response has nothing to do with whether or not I'm a Republican. I no, I'm asking you I would, a question. I would say the okay, same thing Mellick, if I let were me ask in, again. a Democrat. Mellick, do you believe that based upon the email Stephen Miller sent, where he is quoting white nationalist websites, white nationalist books, that he should remain as senior advisor to Donald Trump? Based on that one specific incident? No, but I do believe that... But it's that, 900 okay, specific but, incidents. But, but I do believe... There were 900 emails, Malik. So how is so, it one incident? Well, if I were allowed to finish, you probably would have heard No, but you said so, one incident. Well, I said based on that one incident, I would say no. But I do believe that Stephen Miller has been a distraction, much like Rudy Giuliani. Um, I believe that he's been a distraction to the president, and that's a, it's a very good likelihood that he will not make it a second term. With okay, Donald but Trump I'm asking you again for the third time. Do you believe, based upon and I said based on revelations the, based, of based these, on the revelations that, of these 900 emails, based that on, he should be dismissed as senior advisor to Trump? And to repeat myself, I said based on that one incident alone. No. What I one think, incident? What, what are, are you? What one incident are you just? There are 900 about? emails, Melik. But we're talking about the emails that. That's not one incident. Well, if you sent 900 emails, that's 900 incidents. I think that there is a there are a culmination of things that Stephen Miller has done that have been a distraction to the president. Not I'm just, asking you not for just, the fourth time. Not just the 900. Do you believe that? So do you want me to agree with believe, 900 no, instances it's not a yes of or no. it? It's not a yes or no. Do you believe that Stephen Miller should be dismissed as senior advisor to Trump? Yes or no? And as I said, based on this incident where we're talking about the emails, no. I mean, Kelly, that's, that's not a secret. Kelly. Could you imagine if Valerie Jarrett, one of Obama's top senior advisors, 
did anything remotely. Why are we talking attended? about Valerie Jarrett? She's because, not. She's not the. Because Kelly's you just talking. spent Kelly's the last talking. twenty Kelly's minutes talking. comparing Trump to Obama. Oh, so now we can talk about Valerie Jarrett. No, but nine hundred emails. I'm trying to figure out how that's one incident. Nine hundred emails where he is quoting white nationalist websites. He's using white nationalist language, and he's talking about that particular book. That ain't one incident. It's 900, and 900 of those incidents were woven into policies that Trump has executed, <gasps> policies that Miller either has conceptualized with Trump or influenced Trump on. It, the point of an advisor is to advise for the benefit of the entire American uh, community, like everybody, black, white, brown, indifferent, straight, gay, what have you. Clearly, he's not doing that. Clearly, these policies that Trump has put in place that have been inspired by Miller are racist, prejudiced, discriminatory, and very, very fine line on illegal. Like, whether it's actually illegal or not, I have to do my research on that, but at the very least, it's immoral. Mustafa, it clearly, Stephen Miller is a white nationalist and a racist. Without a doubt, but let's talk about the process, because I've been through the process before. So you have, and I've been through background checks. So they go out, they talk to all kinds of people, they do all kinds of research on you, and then they bring a file. And they put that file in front of folks, and then people have to make a decision if you are in alignment with the administration, if you're in alignment with a president. That's point one. Point two, President Trump has let go dozens of folks who he felt were not in alignment with where he wanted to go. So for me, then that tells me that this individual is in alignment with where he has to go, right. or he would have been one of those folks that have been let go as well. Right. And that's Donald Trump saying, I'm perfectly fine yeah. with a senior advisor quoting white nationalist publications, right. white nationalist books, using white nationalist language. Like, well, silence I, I speaks. Uh, yeah, well, that's the thing. Silence is loud. Yeah. And when you, as president, are not chastising your senior advisor over 900 emails that are clearly racist, that says something well, about we you. We don't know the conversation that he's actually having with We people. know nothing. Is he still employed there? Well, Here's the piece. If he's still employed there, clearly Trump's cool with it. So clearly, I don't get to finish my points because no. you guys well, no, but, jump no, in. No, you're going to finish your what, point. To but what is, I'm is, saying. But, but, but if I can't get the point out, I'll ask you, Bella, is Stephen Miller still there? Yeah, he's is still he still there. employed there? Yeah, he still is. Yeah, but, but I we don't. So. But we don't know the conversations that Stephen Mill, that Donald Trump has had with Stephen Miller. We simply don't know that. But what I am having, has Donald Trump? But what I, I, I am, ask you, has Donald Trump come out and condemned these emails? No, not not. Has that Donald I, Trump? Not that I has know Donald of. Trump come out and said what Stephen Miller wrote was wrong? Not that I know. Has of. Donald Trump come out and say it was wrong for Stephen Miller not, to not pressure Breitbart? Not that I know of. And I don't. I and, I, so. and, I, and I don't expect him to actually make. But he fired his chief of staff, who was actually. Actually getting him on the but straight and narrow. The point he is, the people who the point actually is, is that do something. We can have our issues with. We can have our issues with Stephen Miller. We can have our issues with Stephen Miller. We can think that he's the white supremacist king. That's fine. They, okay. But as far as what this administration has been delivering on behalf of black people, I'm actually satisfied with that. So Stephen oh, wow. Miller can do whatever wow. he wants to do. Wow. So, but the, but so the you're perfectly of, fine with a racist, a white supremacist being in the White House as long as what? You well, think it's an happens? entire. It's an entire. 
administration that we're talking about here, not one specific gotcha. person. All and right. the, and the Trump admin that. administration has been delivering on behalf of black people, yeah. even with Stephen right. Miller there. Right. Now, those are actual facts that right. we can document. Right. I know it doesn't fit with your policy. No, actually, but actually, those but are actually, actually they're not delivering. Document. They're not delivering. Well, yes, they are. Actually, they're not. Well, they are. They're not. You just, you just don't think that well, they no, are. No, actually, they're not. Well, you just I, don't. I've actually broken it down. You just, but, well, of course, but again, I know but again though, what you would, what you're trying to do, no, I'm just telling you about the facts of the You want to chase the rabbit down the foxhole and get away from Stephen Miller being a white supremacist. And what I've said about Stephen Miller, you don't accept it, and of course, you're going to go on to some other subject. But he may be. But I'm happy of what this, how black people are making progress. So you got no problems with so Melek has no problem. What I don't have a problem with. What I don't have a problem with is that black people have been benefiting under this administration. Yeah. Okay. That's what I. All right. Right. I'm sure black people benefited under the racist Herbert Hoover and benefited under Woodrow Wilson. They benefited under Obama too. Guess what? Don't call a racist out because Melek says. You call him out. What? You might benefit. All right, folks, let's talk about what's happening in South Carolina. On his visit to Columbia, South Carolina, billionaire presidential candidate Tom Steyer singled out a target audience, black men. This is what he had to say. 75% of African Americans are in favor of reparations. Reparations for slavery and reparations for that which has come after slavery. All of those things that have kept us as a second-class position second-class citizenship and unequal justice, unequal wealth, and all. A lot of families, a lot of families have shied away from the last period of time. So what we would like to know from you, sir, is how do you stand on the issue of reparations? So let me start by giving a simple answer, which is I'm for reparations. Because in the United States, we've never really been willing to face the truth, as John says, not just of the hundreds of years of enslavement, we've never really been willing to face the truth about the hundred years of Jim Crow. And so that there's a history here that's been denial of the truth for literally 400 years. So when I think, look, I started the need to impeach movement I believe Mr. Trump is a bad man. Yes. I think he's a criminal. And I think... So, the reason I'm running for president is this reason. We have a broken government in Washington, D.C. You know, and, and my opinion is, the reason we have a broken government is the corporation's bond. If you look at the problems we're having, somebody is profiting from We think it's terrible, but somebody's making a ton of money. You guys are paying really high drug prices to somebody. They like it. You know, if you look at this gun violence issue, nine, but the NRA is run by the gun manufacturers. They funnel the money through the NRA, and that's why we can't get any kind of gun, you know, sensible gun safety legislation. It's, you know, I, if you go, if you look at climate change, look, I, it's an issue that I've worried about for over a decade. I've worked on and fought the oil companies on and beat them and fought the utilities on it and beat them. But there's a reason we're not dealing with this. We can have cheaper energy, we can be healthier, we can create millions of good paying jobs in every community in the United States, 
but it's bad for oil companies and natural gas companies and coal companies, and they are winning. First, why did you choose Well, I think that we wanted to be an HBCU. And I think that we were trying to have a place where representatives from the African-American community in North and South Carolina could come. I think I'm a progressive who's traveled this country full time for seven years talking to Americans the way I did tonight. That's completely different. Also, he's a failed businessman. He's a fake businessman. Actually, I'm a successful businessman. It's completely different. One of the reasons I think I should be the candidate is I think in order to win, we're going to have to take Trump on and show him for the fake he was as a businessman and the fake he is as a president. That his supposed economic successes are actually huge failures, that he's a fraud, and that he, we have to take him down. And I'm the person who has by far the most experience in business and international business and economics in, in terms of all the families. All right, folks, joining me right now is Meg Kennard. She's the AP politics reporter. Meg, glad to have you here in South Carolina. First of all, today, Star unveiled his HBCU plan, $125 billion. But the big issue is that he's actually running third among African Americans. What is happening in South Carolina? Hey, Roland, it's always good to be with you. It does seem that Tom Steyer is starting to resonate with voters here in South Carolina. As you well know, as your viewers well know, this is the first place in the primary calendar where black voters really have a significant voice. They comprise most of the Democratic electorate here. So, you know, Tom Steyer has been on TV for months at this point, well before he even became an official candidate. He's been running his need to impeach TV ads. And when I go out and I'm asking voters, hey, you know, who are in your top three? And if they mention Tom Steyer, a lot of the time they're telling me, I've been seeing him on TV for a long time. And now he's coming to South Carolina and he's speaking to issues that matter to me. He's talking about economic justice. He's talking about climate change and how there are, are issues going on with that in their communities. So what I hear from voters is they're interested in learning more about Tom Steyer. Let's keep in mind you know, no one poll is going to tell us exactly what's going to happen. But there's a survey that came out recently that shows Tom Steyer polling third here in South Carolina with numbers among black voters that are higher than many of the other candidates who've been in this race for much longer have ever attained, more than Cory Booker and Kamala Harris put together but, among black voters. But the, difference, so, but the difference here is that what you say at the outset, it's money. Tom Steyer poured some 10 to $12 million of his own money into national ads saying impeach Trump. Then he gets in the race, and he is now, now, of course, he would be leading if Michael Bloomberg had not jumped in, uh, but he has spent uh, more than $50 million bucks on TV ads. At the end of the day, uh, he's inundating people. I saw one story where in Iowa and New Hampshire, they actually were getting sick of his ads because they were running so many. He is committed to spending, I think the last number I saw was is up to $100 million of his own money on TV ads and on these digital ads that people are seeing everywhere. I think he's spent more than twice um, some of his closest competitors when it comes to television and certainly millions more on digital advertising. So you're right, there has been an influx in, in the market of, of all these Tom Steyer ads that other candidates simply can't afford. A lot of that does come from being able to, to spend his own money and to spend it how he wants. But it certainly seems that at least some of the voters I talk to, what he's saying, they like it and they want to know some more. Uh, but, but, the, but the piece we have is here. The reality is 
Uh, if you look at most of these candidates, the resources they have, they're going into Iowa and New Hampshire. And after Iowa is when you begin to see the shift of more resources into South Carolina. We know that Joe Biden is leading overall. Do you think that based upon what you're seeing is that you're likely going to see uh, where a Sanders or even uh, an Elizabeth Warren uh, will still be in a strong position because they'll be shifting to South Carolina. Whereas if you're Steyer, bottom line is you're not making a real dent in Iowa, New Hampshire, so you got to go somewhere. It's a good question, but Tom Steyer at this point is already also on the ground with staff and resources in five of the states at least that vote on Super Tuesday. So he already has his viewpoint shifted to the states that come quickly after South Carolina. I do think that depending on what happens in these early states, certainly Iowa and then New Hampshire, what happens there I think is going to have somewhat of an effect on certainly the mentality of voters and what they think about candidates. It doesn't necessarily mean that if you don't win one of those states, then you're just out of luck in the ones that follow. But a strong performance can seem to indicate to voters they can see that, they can start to kind of develop a mentality of having that person as the nominee. And so it can start to, to flow to these other states. So, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen in those early states. But Tom Steyer has already put the resources in place. I think here in South Carolina, he's got the most of any of the early state staff. There's more than 40 staffers here, last I checked. So he's certainly ready for the votes to come. All right, then, Meg Kennard, we certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Always good to be with you. I appreciate it. Uh, Kelly, what do you make of Tom Steyer and the money he's spending? And I think it's a smart move in terms of getting the message out there, because I remember, uh, I think these have been running since early last year. Like, I've been seeing them for a very long time. I just don't want it to be a, uh, what's the word? I don't want it to seem like pandering, because right. that's my biggest concern. Because what does reparations really look like? You can say that you support it. There's nobody running on the Democratic side who, you know, verbally is against it. So what what does reparations look like? What does 120... How do you get $125 billion to HBCUs? If like, I, I need to see something more substantive as opposed to the lip service from anybody. And with Steyer, I mean, you have almost a, over a year of lip service, if you really think about it, because it's, you know, between the ads, the interviews, the, the you know, campaigning on the ground. It's, it's becoming almost as a gimmick, like a battle of the billionaires type thing, because he's the successful billionaire against the failed billionaire, and where do you go from there? So those are, those are my main concerns. Mustafa. Well, Tom showed up for the environmental justice presidential forum that I did, um, so I appreciate that. Uh, Tom has also been, you know, sort of uh, introducing himself to folks. Um, and, you know, we've talked about this before. So folks got to be able to see you and touch you and feel you. And he's been going into the places all across South Carolina, from the Little PD, you know, all the way over to Spartanburg and a number of other places. He even went to some of those places before he announced that he was going to run. So, you know, most folks want to see you. They want to be able to sit down and have a conversation with you. Now, I think that there is a good point that we got to make sure that the policy is there. You know, Elizabeth Warren puts out those policy plans, and you pretty much know exactly where right. she's going, what she's going to do, and at least uh, somewhat how it's going to be funded. Um, so I, I think people are resonating with Tom, one, because of the commercials, but two, because he's actually out there with folks trying to find out what's going on in their lives. Mel 
I think this is something that we've seen before. Um, with Steyer, it seems like this is a, um, another iteration of what we saw in 2008 and 2012 with Obama, what we saw in 2016 with um, Telly Loveless and the RNC, the efforts that they were doing to actually go into the bar what they call the barbershop tour. So Steyer is doing something similar to that, and I give him credit for doing so, but it's, it we would be remiss for not acknowledging that this is also something that Cory Booker and others are doing. Steyer, in this case, has a about 10% of the vote in South Carolina, but what is, and I, um, the guest actually pointed that out, the reporter pointed that out, is that you have Tom Steyer at 10% and you have Cory Booker at about 2%, and I think Kamala Harris is about 0.34% of the, getting 0.34% of the black <laughs> vote in South Carolina. Well, she's not running anymore. Yeah, and some of that, I'm sorry, but some of that also is, is money because they did not have the resources. Because when you're running for president, it's about an introduction of who you are. What do you believe in? And allowing people to get comfortable with you. And Corey and Kamala did not have the same amount of resources to invest. But on they had the name basis. recognition. No, 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 they didn't. But, but they did. No, no, they no, did. No, no, in no, South Carolina, no, they had they, the name they recognition. Actually, they didn't. And that's the difference. How did they not have they did? They did not. Follow me here. She's a senator from California. Right. He's a senator from New Jersey. And so this assumption that I know you, not true. The difference here, mm -hmm. and this is where money does play, if I am all of a sudden in a seven day, in seven days a week, first of all, let's deal with the fact that black people watch TV more than anybody else. Which that's is why one. we know who no, those no, two no, are. No, no, that's wrong. Because, but they do, but Roland. You can't say that the people of South actually, Carolina didn't know. No, you're wrong. Money helps. No, money you, absolutely okay, allow helps. Allow me to finish so you can understand why oh, you're okay. wrong. Yeah, well, I'll allow Black you to folks watch point. television more than anybody else. So if you're Tom Steyer and you're spending money and dropping millions on TV ads seven days a week, and they had no ads on television. So here you have an individual who I'm hearing on radio and seeing on television, and I'm not hearing over here. There are still places where Senator Cory Booker is going. Yep. I was like, I don't know who you are. Exactly. And so this assumption that just because you're a black United States senator and you're in South Carolina and you're black, oh, I know you, that's just simply not true. Well, and so what Steyer is doing, it's the same thing Bloomberg. Bloomberg cannot, so even though he's been mayor of New York, there's no assumption everybody knows Mike Bloomberg. Right. So Mike Bloomberg also knows he can't get into the debates because he won't have the donors. That's why he's already dropped $100 million because he's saying, I'm going to inundate the airwaves so you know who I am, and it's, it's just beating into the head. That is the difference here. And so the issue that I said with Senator Harris and Booker, the reason they have had a diff difficult time resonating is because they were not known. And because they did not put the work in between 2016 and 2019, folks to know that, all of a sudden they jump in and it's like, hey, I'm here. That's why. They're not known. Well, I disagree with that. I don't think that they're not known. They don't have the resources that Steyer has. Have you talked to any of their staffers? But, but I disagree. Now, I'm asking you a question. Have you talked to any of the staffers of Booker and Harris uh, when they were on the ground? Have you talked to any of them? No, I okay, have not. I have. Okay, and let me tell you, no, so let me tell you what staff Just has said. No, 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 because there's a difference, Melick, between coming on air and giving your opinion. But Roland, you're arguing. You're, you're, you're arguing about something that I think is kind of nonsensical. The notion that black voters in South Carolina don't know who Kamala Harris and Senator Cory. They Booker don't. Are. 
So I can chime in real quick. Go ahead. I'm a little different. That's a little different. That's different from having a money argument. They don't. To flood. If you actually talk to the people who work on their campaigns, they will tell you what I'm saying is correct because they're the ones introducing them. Go ahead, Mustafa. I spent a huge amount of time, brother, all across the country and especially in the South, and I'm having real conversations with Mrs. Ramirez and Mr. Johnson, and what they say is that it's not that they don't like uh, Corey or Kamala, it was that they did not yet know them. And they're looking that, for opportunities. But that's a, well, that's, I think that that's a different awesome. argument about knowing them as far as their policies or anything like that. But the person, they absolutely know who Cory Corey well, Booker they, general, and Kamala I mean, Harris. Of course yes, they, they know do. the name. But, but until they, you actually introduce yeah. your yeah. policies or something, of course they're okay. not going to know everything about that. Policy. And let me just quickly say, I, both quick. Corey and Kamala both have excellent policies, and they both would have made, will or would have made, great presidents, depending on how this all turns out. Bottom line is, when you run for president, it comes down to money. And whoever has the most money, who can drive your messaging, guess what? Yep. Places where you can't go, Money helps you in that way. And that's, and that's what you're now dealing with. All right, y'all, got to go to break. We come back. We're going to talk about the crisis happening in Haiti, of course. That is a real, real issue. And the question is, will that country find some stability in its politics to be able to grow and prosper? This next on Roller Martin Unfiltered. You want to check out Roller Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. You want to support Roller Martin Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. All right, folks, it's the holiday season. This is when you think about spending time with your family and friends. This is also when you count your blessings and support those less fortunate. This year, you can become a holiday hero and change someone's life forever. Right now, hundreds of thousands of people are sitting in jail without being convicted of a crime. Why? Because they can't pay their bail. If you're arrested uh, for any minor offense, you'll be taken directly to jail. If you don't have bail money, you will sit there until a court date is scheduled. That could be days, weeks, or even months. Simply put, America's bail system is broken for people of color. Freedom should not be free. So the Ebony Foundation is partnering with the Bail Project. They're sponsoring Home by the Holiday campaign. The goal is to get a thousand people bailed out of jail by the end of the year. A donation from you can change someone's life tomorrow. So what they want you to do is simply go to home. Well, first of all, you can donate 25, 50 bucks or more to the Ebony Foundation. So go to homebytheholiday.com. It's homebytheholiday.com for you to help somebody get out of jail and be with their loved ones for this Christmas season. All right, folks, let's talk about Haiti, of course, uh, an embattled country that is right off uh, American shores. Haitian leaders came to D.C. today to speak to the House Committee on Foreign Affairs about the crisis in the country. Here's a look at some of the testimony. Are there any uh, leaders of the opposition that you could name? And could you speak to how 
a transitional government could actually, how do we ensure that that doesn't contribute to the chaos and actually does get uh, Haiti on a pathway to peace? I think the first way would be to ensure that civil society play a really strong role instead of dealing with the crisis as a crisis between the president and the opposition because the youth, the, the people from the accountability movement, we don't believe that all those politicians who want the president to resign are actually fit to replace him or to be in charge of the country. We want to, to take the process really seriously and have a vetting. We don't want any corrupt official, whether it's from the opposition or from the government party, to be in place and we think that society, the youth, the petrol challengers has to play a key role if we want to move forward and avoid chaos. We don't want chaos, we don't want all the, we don't want opponent to just replace the president. It's not about taking power and just keep minding their own business. It's about changing our country, it's about doing something new, it's about finally taking Haiti away from this mess, if I can say it this way. I'm in a position of trying to determine what should we do, what should I do as a member of the United States Congress and the policies that we put forward and the money that we want to invest it, where should we do it, where should we put it, is it the right thing, is it the wrong thing? So I got a minute to go that I have anyone to answer those questions. Mr. Erickson. Sure. Uh, I think that one, uh, you know, very important role for Congress could be to, to go to Haiti soon and really assess the situation. Uh, regarding the question of the Haitian National Police, I think ultimately civilian security in, in Haiti is going to depend on national police, right? We don't want the army to come back. But I do think that this uh, requires more in-depth ex examination by, by Congress, either members of this committee or others who may be interested um, to investigate this. Thank you. Oh, and just to add to that, I, I think it's very important, you were saying, what we should, we should invest in. I think we should invest in local governance, strengthening local institutions. I think that is one of the best ways uh, to move forward, to really strengthen uh, Haitians and really also work with the grassroots uh, civil society organizations and really build them up to be able to be those actors of change, those political champions uh, that can really help move Haiti forward. Joining us right now is Pastor Gary Theodot of the Haiti, Haiti Democracy Project. Uh, Pastor, glad to have you here. We've, a lot of folks, let's just be honest, in this country have not spent time focused on this issue, Pastor. Um, we think of Haiti, and frankly, the only time folks think about this country is when you talk about hurricanes, we, we talk about uh, earthquakes. Um, and so from your vantage point, what should this country be doing when it comes to what's happening in Haiti? Thank you, and I want to uh, thank you for the invitation, and I'm pleased to be with you in this program tonight to talk about Haiti again. Like you just said, people have talked and heard about Haiti in only in negative ways. Let's say when we have hurricane, political instabilities, or other problems. But uh, we know that Haiti has many problems, political, economical, and so on. But we as people from Haiti, Haitian all over, we are, we are seeking, we are asking, and also, we are trying to get 
some help from our neighbors, from <laughs> our partners, to help us to build the country after so many years of political instabilities. But, but so, but let's say the last four years. I'm just saying last four years. Yes. How many prime ministers have you had? Uh, after four years, right. we have, let's say, one, two, let's say about three, three prime ministers. Right. So, and, and so, so you've had protests. So what is driving the instability that way you get you they have no continuity of leadership because part part of this issue is also if you're a member of Congress or it's like okay well now who's in charge now who's in charge and so new prime minister new leadership new ambassadors all of a sudden and so when it's constantly changing the question then becomes okay if I get to know somebody hell six months later they're gone correct the point is that all right we have trying to build up a democracy system there. But people are not really ready for the democratic system. Because of what? Um, we have a culture of not really accepting that we are losing. Let's say we had an election two years ago, 19, six, uh, 19 2000, uh, 2016. We have an elected president, Mr. Jovenel Moise, who was elected by the people. Only two years in power, people who were candidates and who were not elected, they are trying to oppose to the president, to oppose to his plan, to oppose to his vision. And now we have this type of instabilities there in the country, where people are not only asking for better services or also to have a better living, but they are supported and pushed by the oppositional leaders to have violence and to have, a, a, like, actually we have, the country has been blocked by who? By the opposition leaders. And also, we have so many armed um, gangs who are trying to intimidate people to vacate at their businesses to go on with their lives. The, and the problem is not only political. We know that. It's all also economical. Because Haiti have, has, a, has a profound economic problems. That needs to be addressed. Let's talk about one of the issues that I've talked to folks there. Um, I've talked to journalists there. Um, it is a particular interest to me because my great great grandfather migrated from Haiti. Yes. Let's deal with the five families of Haiti. Mm -hmm. You've got very rich folks there. Yes. You've got individuals uh, who, um, away from Port-au-Prince, mm -hmm. who fa frankly are doing well. In fact, after the hurricane. Um, when the United States State Department uh, wanted to build temporary housing on some land there, mm -hmm. literally these rich families wanted to charge the federal government mm -hmm. more than $250,000 per acre mm -hmm. for that land. Yes. I remember doing an interview with Cheryl Mills when she was the chief of staff for Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. uh, and when I stated that, 
She was very surprised that I, that I knew about that. Yeah. They literally were trying to charge Americans $270 plus million dollars mm. to build housing on the land. So aren't you also dealing with rich interest in Haiti controlling the economics and the politics of Haiti and poor Haitians are sitting here saying we're the ones getting screwed? How do you, we deal with that? And that this is what is going on now where those rich families, they want to control the political power. And the actual president is uh, trying to change the system, to say, hey, Listen, for those who are controlling the country for so many years, and the poor people cannot get anything from, from them, from the system, is trying to be their voices. But what they do, they use the political, the opposition leaders to try to not only to disturb, but to stop and to block the actual government program for the country. And this is what we want the international community to understand what is going there. It's not the people against the president. It's the, some people from the private sectors that finance the, gang, the armed gangs to intimidate people, to terrorize the country, like right now. We understand that. We have a group of people that try to defend or to ask for a better life, for a better living. But at the same time, the <coughs> private sectors is trying to use some of the politicians to block the actual president program. Mustafa, go ahead. Huh. I mean, I've been to Haiti a couple of times and yes. um, spent time in Port-au-Prince. So how do we rebuild the infrastructure that's necessary? Because I'm one who believes that when you give people hope again, when you make sure that they have a home, when you make sure that they have running water consistently, you know, all the various things that are necessary, how do we begin to get that in place? I know there is a political aspect, um, but I, for me, as someone who focuses on rebuilding communities, how do we do that? Well, we can do it by the by several ways, like uh, using people, people who live there, they know their needs, mm -hmm. they know what they want, and they have interest in a better living. They know that. And also, we can do it in partnership with them or but with the government. Mm -hmm. Because of the, the infrastructure problems that it is facing now, it's, it's a long due. And we want to change. We want to make a change. But the point is, with this political instabilities, we cannot do anything. Mm -hmm. And this is what we are trying to help the international community to understand. The political instabilities affect the country's economic health. We cannot make any progress with the political instabilities. And this group of people who are trying to block what the actual president is trying to do for the best of our country, mm -hmm. they don't want anything good or they don't want to stay 
out of power. They want to control the country while they are not doing anything for the well-being of the people. Uh, Jacqueline Charles is a, a friend of mine. She was a journal NABJ Journalist of the Year. She wrote this piece. Go to my iPad, please. She wrote this piece in May 15th, 2019. Uh, says, dozens brutally killed, raped in Haiti massacre. Police say even young children were not spared. Uh, that is the uh, La Saline massacre. 50 people who were killed and Haitian officials were implicated. And, so, and, and the citizens there uh, still demanding justice. Okay. I was, I just came from Haiti. I live in Boston, and I know what I'm trying to say. Um, people have been talking about uh, the La Saline massacre. Uh, Officials are involved in that. They cannot prove it. One. And also, we heard it this morning with those two people from Haiti, Mr. Pierre L'Esperance and Mrs. Uh, Duyon. They were talking about ma massacre in Nassadine. But the point is, we have armed gangs, and they are fighting to each other. So you have armed gangs, but do you have a Haitian military combating the gangs, and what, the gangs are overrunning the military? But the point is, the police, it's, to me, uh, not only, it's, the reality is that the police has, doesn't have the capacity to deal with those gangs. So the police because can't they deal have, with the gangs? The no, military, they can't. Because the, they have, the gangs have a better, better army, arms than the police. How do you because Haiti has an right. arm embargo where we cannot have good munition to deal with those issues. And this is why we need to understand what is going on now. While the Amnesty International tried to put this problem on the government. But the government doesn't have anything to do with the La Saline massacre because it's armed gangs fighting to each other. It's not only there, but it's all over the country. So how do you they deal... So how do you deal, again, at the end of the day, in terms of moving forward, you have to have a sense of unity within a country before you can even go to an external force. So yes. if you've got a ruling party and the opposition not wanting to sit down, if you've got allegations of a president stealing $3 billion, at the end of the day, how are you going to get America to be willing to step in if you continue to have internal dissension? And what do you want? Are you looking for America to come in as a mediator? Are you, I mean, so, so exactly what? Because you're going to have people who are saying, yo, if I'm giving money, why? So the question is, what specifically do you want from America to deal with what's happening in Haiti? All right. Uh, as you heard it this morning, the same question was asked to those two people who came from, who were invited by the Foreign Affairs Committee at the Congress. The point is, um, let's say we, we know that this problem are from us, Haitian. And we need Haitian to have a solution to that problem. We know that. But the point is, we reach a point where dialogue cannot be established or dialogue cannot go through between the political actors 
now the international community is trying to see what they can do as a mediator to find a way to address these, these actual problems between the political actors. What we want from the United States is to have a better understanding of what is going on. Like, they want to get the country to a point where violence is, where human, human rights right. abuses go, can go on and force the international community to ask the actual president, which is the elected president, to get out. That's what they have been doing for a while. Who, and if who, who we do understand... Who wants elected president to get out? That's the opposition leaders. They are using the people from the streets. The armed gangs, they finance them. Gotcha. They but, arm them. But, no, no, but I'm still asking. I'm still asking, and which is not clear to me. Yes. What do you want America to do? You have Congressional Black Caucus members. You've got a House. You've got Senate. What do you want America to do? Are you, do you want America to send in a special envoy in order to help mediate uh, these competing interests in Haiti, similar to what we've tried to do in the Middle East? Sure, we will we, we welcome that. No, no, and but that no, is it no, 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 not, not what you welcome. Is that what you're asking for? We want that, exactly. So you, this is how we, the, the, the American embassy is very involved there in Haiti to try to, to see what they can do to have a good Got it. dialogue among the actors. But unfortunately, the president is open to, to the, that dialogue. But the opposition leaders don't. Right. No, they but, they right. don't want to have any dialogue with the president. No, no, no. What I'm saying, okay, follow me here. I'm using the Israelis and Palestinians as an example. Yes. If you have an American envoy who comes in, who's meeting with the president and his party, who's meeting with the opposition party in order to try to bring them together, what you're asking is you want Americans, you want Trump, or you want Congress to assign an American envoy on a negotiating team to assist in mediating the warring factions in Haiti to come to a political uh, solution. We will welcome that. We want that, but it's not only American, but it can be the international community. No, I got you, but, yes. but, the, but the reality is, if you get, if want, you get that yes. from the Americans, other folks will follow. Actually, okay. this is a water. We need, we need, a, we need a mediator to, to, to resolve that problem. All right, Pastor Theodot, yeah. we appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Thank you very much. All right, keep us abreast of what's happening. Okay, thanks. All right, folks. Uh, jury selection, folks, uh, in this case out of Maryland. Uh, after his trial was delayed four times, jury selection has started this week for Sean Urbanski, the man charged with the hate crime murder of Richard Collins on the University of Maryland College Park campus. Prosecutors believe Urbanski killed Collins, who was, a who was about to graduate from Bowie State, because he had a bias against black people. He has been charged with a hate crime and first-degree murder. We'll certainly up update you on this case as it moves forward. Also in today's news, in the court system, uh, Bill Cosby has lost his appeal when it came to his uh, sexual assault conviction. You might remember, of course, uh, he went to the appeals court. Uh, they upheld the verdict. Of course, uh, in his trial, Cosby lawyers had complained that the judge let five women testify at last year's retrial in suburban Philadelphia, although he had let just one woman testify at the first trial in 2017. In his ruling, the Superior Court said prosecutors 
had a right to call other accusers to support their case. Here's a statement from Cosby's attorneys. This news of the Superior Court denying Mr. Cosby's appeal is appalling and disappointing, but it shows the level of corruption that resides in the judicial system of Pennsylvania. These panel of judges never took the time to review the facts of Mr. Cosby's appeal. Mr. Cosby's appeal outlined the bias of Judge Stephen T. O'Neill, showed that the jurors were tainted by juror number 11, who stated, Mr. Cosby is guilty, let's not waste a lot of time and find him guilty. Showed that the, the 404B witnesses should have never been allowed to offer testimony in Mr. Cosby's trial because they had no similar interest with Andrea Constant. And most importantly, Mr. Cosby's deposition should have never been considered at the trial. It's obvious that these judges' minds were made up because they didn't take the time to dissect Mr. Cosby's appeal. We're not shocked because it shows the world that this isn't about justice. This is a political scheme to destroy America's dad. However, they will not stop us and we will prevail in the state Supreme Court. Mr. Cosby remains hopeful and his stands behind his innocence. Also, folks, um, uh, today, of course, remember we told you yesterday the Senate approved the amended Future Act provided more than $200 million in funding to HBCUs for STEM. Well, today, the House, they passed that amended act as well. And so now that goes on to Trump for his signature. And so hopefully those dollars will be flowing to the H for HBCUs when it comes to the issue of STEM. Now, that's important because when we talk about uh, what's happening with African-Americans uh, and finance, the reality is things, despite all the stuff you're hearing from Trump, how great things are, mm, facts don't support that. Here's what I mean by that. African-Americans are the only racial group in the country making less than they did 10 years ago. Studies show that black Americans have struggled for years to move up the economic ladder. We have a harder time finding jobs and something as simple as having an African-American sounding name could be enough for an employer to, to, to deny you a job. Joining me now to talk about this, of course, is America's Wealth Coach, Deborah Owens. Uh, Deborah, glad to have you uh, back on the show. Good to be back. So here's what's interesting. When you look at the unemployment numbers, Trump touts, oh, how great things are, especially for black people. But the reality is the jobs that you're seeing are low-wage jobs. Uh, you're not talking about uh, those high-wage jobs impacting uh, African-Americans. Second, when you talk about where black folks stand economically, you will never hear Trump talk about the housing crisis. At the number right now is almost at the point where it was when the Fair Housing Act was enacted in 1968. It's not even above 41%. I dare say the reason that number hasn't moved goes back to the home foreclosure crisis where 53% of black wealth was wiped out because of the home foreclosure crisis. I don't argue that, but we're talking income and wages, right? And so your point to the fact that low-wage low earners represent, there are 53 million low-wage earners, and that's 44% of folks who are employed. So when I look at the uh, stats on African-Americans and our stagnation in terms of wages, what you really have to look at are three things, right? First, occupations. Uh, occupations, uh, our social capital, our ability to move upwards when we get into organizations, and third, but not least, our business ownership. So let's start with <clears throat> occupations. Uh, the fact is that our highest participation uh, for African Americans is offices and, and administrative support. It's about 13, 14, almost 14 percent. Those are lower wage jobs. And what you know, if you start delving into the study itself, what you see uh, in, in terms of what they see as some of the remedies are that unions were one of the reasons, unionization of jobs were one of the reasons that um, African Americans got hired 
and also incomes were higher. Well, what we've seen is an erosion of unionized jobs, and in fact, uh, where you see the largest wage growth really is in um, management and technology. And so when you layer that and look back at that numbers, what you see is that Asian employment, they have some of the highest uh, participation in those different roles. And Hold so, on, but let's go back to the, to the union piece. Okay. Because the reality is the attack on unions really intensified with Ronald Reagan as president when he fired the air traffic controllers, even though he got the Teamsters endorsement uh, when he ran for president. And so you get this constant assault on unions. Uh, and what people don't understand is that African Americans, we historically have been frozen out of corporate jobs, and the place where African Americans, not only when it came to union jobs, but also government jobs. And so then when you had the attack on so-called big government, the people who were most, who proportionally were impacted by that were African Americans. And so when you had the layoffs of teachers and police officers and firefighters and city workers and county workers and state workers and federal workers, those were the places where black folks were making mid 50 or even six-figure salaries and it was not commensurate to what was happening in corporate America. Yes, and so you see, really, that our access to opportunity and to middle incomes for African Americans, a lot of those opportunities in this new financial normal, where you have the highest-paying jobs being more in technology, and, and, and even then, even though we're getting these educations and getting these degrees, what you and you go into these organizations, you don't see any of us in there. And so that brings me to the second aspect, and that really is social capital. What our our kids need to understand is it's not enough to just get that degree. You really have to understand how to be strategic when you get into these organizations and really figure out ways in which you can succeed. Um, however, I, what, the, the point I really want to make is what the, the, the only, we are the ones we've been waiting for. And what I mean by that is if you look at black business ownership and the fact that so often we're starting businesses at a higher rate, what you see, though, is only 107,000 of those two to three million businesses even employ people. Right. And so and one employee and they and those and all those businesses have an average revenue of fifty four thousand dollars when seven years ago when we had one point nine million black owned businesses, we had one point eight million one employee, but they were doing one hundred ten thousand. So so yes, we have more black owned businesses, but smaller capacity. Right. And so to that point is if you look at Hispanic and Asian incomes, one of the things you cannot ignore is that they, they have started businesses, their businesses employ more people, and if we're going to employ more of our people, it really is business ownership. You know, I um, belong to this organization, Traffic Sales and Profit in Atlanta, where this uh, Lamar Tyler heads, and he's really helping uh, black entrepreneurs scale, and that's really the issues, right? It's yep. not enough to just hire, create a job for yourself right. is basically what we're doing is because of that limit, uh, limited opportunity when, in fact, what we have to do is employ people. And I, I'm going to call you out for just a minute, Roland, because if you think about your show and if you think about all the people, myself included, who you brought on that show and all of those people that went on and are now on CNN and, you know, uh, MSNBC and all, that opportunity that you gave them really was social capital. There is no way 
any of us would have gotten that type of exposure had we not had that door, that entry door. And that, to me, is the most significant part of uh, business ownership. And, and those are jobs that, we, depending upon contracts, uh, 50, 75, 100 plus thousand dollars. Uh, I know, and there are some who are up 150, $170,000 who I put on TV first. And so you're right, when you see Nia Malika Henderson, when you see April Ryan, when you see Angela Ryan, Paul Butler, David Swerlick, I can go on and on and on. Dr. Jason Johnson, I mean, all right. of the above. And so the point that I want to make, and, and, and I feel like we need to be clear, is that business ownership in our community, that is the new frontier. And if we're going to employ our uh, kids who are in high school and keep employment of even those who have to transition during middle management, that is the, uh, the areas that we need to focus on, not, not just starting businesses, but also scaling. And, and again, when you, so again, when you talk about scales, I'm just gonna use this show uh, you know, as an example. So if you take those numbers, 2.6 million black-owned businesses, 2.5 million have one employee, average revenue 54,000. So we lost this in September 2018, actually really the beginning of 2018 after news, TV One canceled News One Now. So first year, we did about 700,000 in revenue. There are nine employees. So if you take the top 10%, if you take that top uh, echelon of black businesses, we're in it after one year. And, the, and so, because and my deal always has been, you have to have scale. Yeah. I've had people who got mad at me when I said, I don't want more black business. He's like, what? I said, no. I said, give me the 2.6 now that have 25, 50, 100 employees. They were like, what are you talking about? Because we've gotten wrapped up in, hey, it's a black-owned business. I, I, I spoke at a, an award ceremony in Houston, and they gave an award to three black PR companies. And I'm sitting there waiting to get my keynote, and I'm going, I bet you between the three of them, they ain't doing a million combined in revenue. And I'm sitting there going, I wonder if those three ever sat down and said, why don't we have one larger PR company where we can go after larger contracts and employ more people? And, and, and I'll just give you this here before I go to you. I've probably spoken at easily 20-plus black chambers of commerce events. And when I go in, I ask them for the program. And I go through the program. And not one of them was M&A, mergers and acquisitions, a part of the agenda. And I said, guys, there's no way we're gonna have scale if you're happy having CEO on your card and I'm happy having CEO on my card and we don't learn to say, how can we actually merge or acquire to be able to grow and hire more of our people? Yes, and so, so that's the point. You know, that's that, to me, what was very uh, telling in that statistic was the uh, the fact that that our wages have not grown, the fact that you know we're talking about unemployment being lower, but still black unemployment is twice as our our, our white counterparts. The fact that so many of the professions that we go into historically pay lower uh, salaries, whether it be you know social work or. Um, you, you know, administrative positions, and I, and, and so I don't want to just put the um, the onus on 
you know, it's the people out there that won't hire hire us. I also want to uh, <coughs> put the onus on um, really folks getting more strategic about their own careers. Because one of the right. things that I do is work with folks, and I'm seeing people are just staying in the same place for like 10 years, and their average um, right. increase is 2%, and so you go nowhere. And so we're picking safety, right, right. over, you know, safety over the ability to increase our income. So some of that onus is, 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 is self-inflicted. Kelly? So with all that being said, how do we scale? How does, you know, a company such as Roland, like, what... Roland was saying in terms of examples, how do those small businesses actually merge? So I'm, so I'm going to give you an example. I think part of our issues, if you look at Asian, his, Hispanics, historically, they have been entrepreneurs. Now, back in the day, prior to uh, us going into professional careers or the, the Great Migration, our, all of our families were basically entrepreneurs because we had to create a job for ourselves. So. I, I believe, uh, like myself, at scaling, what it requires mm -hmm. is you getting the competency and being around other entrepreneurs who have scaled so you can learn how to scale. It's not enough to just write a business plan. It really is being more strategic and thoughtful. And to Roland's um, uh, part is, it's not all of a, always about us being the head of the organization. Right. Is who are some other uh, business owners who you can strategically partner with that you can enhance one right. another's businesses, and then you can learn. And so part of that exchange strategically is getting uh, the infrastructure and the systems and the processes in place. I would say an another opportunity for African-American-owned businesses, business owners, too, if you want to become an entrepreneur, one of the other ways to do that is to get into businesses that already have those systems and processes in it. So rather, it's fran if it's franchises, and in fact, there are a number of businesses that are uh, uh, business owners are retiring. Mm. So what are some businesses in your community that you can already go in, uh, I don't want to say apprentice, but work perhaps right. for a lower salary knowing that eventually you're going to succeed. And that really gives you the opportunity to be more successful because mm -hmm. they already have runway and cash flow. And before I go to Malik, uh, here's the other piece. In our families, all right, you got to also make a decision to say, how do I pick up where what's already existing? So, for instance, when I think about Robert Abbott when he founded the Chicago Defender. He knew he was going to be retiring, so he tapped his nephew. I'm going to teach you, John Sinistak, take this over when I'm, when I'm gone. My grandmother had a catering business for some 40 years. Uh, me and my brother, my family, we took over the business. All were owners, and then uh, he then uh, took the business and still owns it. And so now it's like now you have a second generation That's business. Right. So what you also need is you need some family members to say, "Hey, um, you built a second generation business." I need to study or focus in that area to take it over when it's time for you to go. Same for me. It doesn't make sense for me to have this capacity to build this and not have a niece or nephew say, man, I better learn all this media stuff because guess what? Mm -hmm. This is a business that I could potentially take over in the next 10 years. And we talk about Asians and Latinos. That's also one of the issues. Part of the problem, we got a lot of black-owned businesses where the next generation is like, okay, I don't want to do that. 
And so all of that capacity has been built, all of that knowledge, all that expertise, and then they're either sell to somebody else or, frankly, they shut it down when a person retires or passes away, and now you re you're restarting versus building on top of what they already did. So what you just defined, Roland, is wealth. Right? It, it transfers from generation to generation. And what is happening in our community is everybody is starting out from scratch. We're recreating you know, the wheel we every got, generation. We've got to, you know, we, it's just like making a scratch cake, you know? <laughs> like, you got to put all the ingredients in. When, in fact, if we had those systems and processes in already, it makes for a much smoother transition, a much smoother runway, and then the ability to continue to scale. Uh, Melody? I thank you the, your point about um, people becoming complacent, if you will, in their jobs. I think that's a really good point, and we do need to focus on retraining some of those people. I, I use myself as an example. I'm currently taking IT classes, something I never considered before, never considered having a career, but you have places like D.C. that I think is doing a pretty good job as that, whether it's through the apprenticeship program or this young guy, um, Raymond Bell, who has the HOPE Project. And what the HOPE Project does, it actually trains um, uh, formerly incarcerated individuals, people who, you know, don't have those employables, may not have employable skills to enter into the workforce. And so he's, he's actually creating opportunities for that. And I think that the more that cities are able to replicate sy systems like that, it, 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 and I think we need an all-hands, you know, on-deck approach to it. And I think that's something that if other cities actually start doing themselves, this is something that can actually change the trajectory for many lives. Because many of these jobs are actually middle-class jobs. But I also think, Deborah, to your point, is mindset. Tied with that. Because we talk about safe. The reality is, if we really want to be honest, many of us have been raised by black grandparents and baby. Mm -hmm. Don't you lose that, that good, good job that good government because job. they're thinking <laughs> yeah. in terms yeah. of job as opposed to, no, if there's an opportunity, that's also where risk comes in. That's right. And, and fortune really favors the, 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 the folks who are more ambitious and innovative. And so the, mind, the mindset is huge. And in fact, it has hindered our ability. So, to your point, uh, Roland, when you look at the transition that we've made over these two decades, right, it's very difficult for someone to come out of high school and earn a 50K, which is something that you could do in Detroit 20, 30, 30 years ago. Yep. However, what happened, and technology, artificial intelligence, all of that is going to continue to compress right, the number of opportunities that are available. That automation, all of that. Absolutely. So if you are not the people that, because the other statistic I don't, that, that I didn't see uh, shown in that report was um, Nielsen did a study mm -hmm. on, and, and they talk about that one of the fastest growing segments, not the largest, but the fastest growing segment for African American are those with incomes over 150K. So the question is, what do they know that other people don't? Mm -hmm. And what I would submit to you is that ability to be very dynamic, mm -hmm. to understand that we're in a volatile economy, and that you have to constantly be willing to shift. You know, you may have... My, my husband went to school to be a journalist. He became an anchor, reporter. That's how uh, we all know each other, and yet now, He's VP of a communications for an advertising agency doing crisis communications, mm -hmm. right? So you have to be willing 
right, to look at what your skill set is and transition and go where the opportunities are. And so, to your point, we do have to be more strategic. Mustafa? Well, some people talk about uh, personal responsibility. I'm glad that we're talking about family responsibility. I know in my family, the young kids, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, they're engaged in the family business. But I'm also curious about our major organizations. What role do you see them playing? Um, our, our churches, our, you know, mosque, synagogue, and also our fraternities and sororities and, and the other sort of civic organizations. What role do you see them playing? So in? I'm glad you brought that up because I think that is uh, an untapped resource, something <coughs> that we can use for social capital. I think our organizations, whether it be the D Divine Nine, whether it be our churches, that's where our community is. And so we have to be much more strategic about how we're pooling our resources mm -hmm. and also how we're preparing ourselves. I mean, there's in many churches what go, you know, what is going on is that there are those career counseling, there are financial boot camps and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But I think the next frontier really is pooling our resources together so that we can go in and buy franchises. Mm -hmm. We can give the access to capital that is so uh, needed, as I'm sure Roland would, <coughs> would can speak on, in order for you to be able to scale your business. Sure. Because that's the other point. Getting access to, uh, for, even though you have revenue coming in, you still have to be able to hire people. Right. So you need a line of credit and cash flow in order to be able to grow. And, and I would say this here, when you talk about the family piece, mm -hmm. having, beginning to have those conversations like that we do, and do what we used to do, which also Asians and Latinos do, where if you're in a family unit mm -hmm. where you say, we're going to pool our resources and then what dollars raised to help this one person open that particular franchise, and guess what? We can all employ each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, I mean the, the bottom line is this here. You take any business, okay, you have to go hire people. Mm -hmm. So if I own a business, common sense says... If I got family members, I would rather pay a family member for a service who has the skill set because that's the person who I'm, I know better than anybody else. Well, it's interesting, though, because it goes back to mindset, right? And, yeah. I, I, and if we want to be honest, what, we, what I would say is that in uh, many of our families, there is a lack of trust. And, uh, and that lack of trust, as I see it, is simply based on uh, ignorance, right? So Not lack of trust in our families, which then extends to a lack of trust overall among black people. I mean, I, 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 can, I, I can tell you, because uh, I got no problem saying it because I've said it before. Look, before we launched this show, I went to every major black media company and, I'm saying, and I said, I'm about to do something that none of you are doing. Here's an opportunity... Mm. For us to partner, you already have infrastructure in terms of sales team, in terms of office space. So we can do a deal where I handle the show aspect, you handle the HR, back end stuff along those lines. We also do revenue split, and I and I take your pick, and I talk to all of them. No response or not interested. And I'm sitting here going, now, now I'm sitting here looking at them and I'm going, you don't have what I'm talking about. So guess what? NBC launched a streaming news service. 
Fox launched Fox Nation. ABC expanding their digital service, digital news service. CBSN expanding digital news service. I'm looking at all, and, I, and so people were telling me I was crazy, and I'm going, so if I was crazy, how the hell is every other media outlet launching digital news services? And I literally could not get, and still cannot, Deborah, get black media owners to say, let's partner. And one of them was like, you know what? I don't feel. I don't really told someone else. I don't want to. I don't want to deal with big personalities and egos. I'd rather just own the whole thing and pay somebody. And I'm going. That ain't gonna happen if you got somebody who's built a personal brand who doesn't want to just take have a job, but who also wants to be an owner too. Well, yeah, but then okay. So let's get back to mindset again, right? What you're really. You're you're taking the tra the path less less travel and let's be honest, uh, so much of the investments and the uh, uh, strategy and the growth, the lack of it in our community around innovation really is risk aversion, right? We if you look at in if from an investment standpoint, most of our assets are in fixed income investments, CDs government, anything that's guaranteed where we're not going to lose our principal. And in fact, what we don't realize in doing so, you there there's risk in taking no risk at all. Right. But, but, the, but, but the thing for me is, and again, as somebody who's always been a futurist, if you will, in terms of this industry, 2005, I'm at a media fellowship at Cal Berkeley, and Evan Williams comes in, and he's teaching us about this new podcasting platform he's launching, Odeo. Okay, this is the same Evan Williams who later becomes a co-founder of Twitter. And so I come back to Chicago Defender and I launched audio podcast in 2005. 2006, we launched a video podcast. So come 2016, 17, everybody's like, podcast, podcast. I was like, yeah, I kind of did that 12 years ago. But I'm at the Defender. Here you got these black millionaires who own the company who are like, what's all this, this podcast stuff? I said, trust me, if y'all get out of my way, and let me do this, I'm, I can guarantee you where you're go we're going. Here we are in 2019, and they are trying to do stuff that I was doing in 2005. And what, and so part of the other issue, this is the final issue I want you to speak on, Deborah. Part of the other issue with these black-owned companies is you have got to understand that if you don't see around the corner, you're actually guaranteeing your demise. Ebony Magazine, I'm gonna listen before I go to you. John Johnson did not believe in the internet. Well, yeah. Did it, not. He said, I don't wanna hear digital stuff. And I'm sitting there going, bruh, this is happening. Final point, go ahead. Okay, so my final point is really this, and that is because of our risk aversion, our lack of exposure, our lack of capital, our lack of safety nets. What is required in our community is much more education, right? And so what I would say to you, even as you're going out here raising capital, that a huge... We can't just go get a bunch of people in the room and say, okay, guys, this is what we're doing. Here's the potential. Write me a check for 20, 30, 40, 50,000. In our community, what we have to do is really paint a picture. Yep. And then give some examples yep. of other businesses who have... Uh, started at this stage and now are yep. where they are now. It is a longer... That's one thing that we're doing. Yes, it's yep. a longer process, 
but it's necessary because this is the, um, the in, in the investment landscape, whether it be private uh, funding, uh, friends and family or whatever, right. we never had the assets to even be able to get into the front end of the Twitters or the what uh, of the world. So we have little limited experience. I, but I want us, though, who have the opportunity now to seize it and not still try to operate in the early 20th century. No Deborah, how can people reach you? People can go to my website, WealthyU.com, uh, sign up for our weekly newsletter, all kinds of tips. If you want to turn your income into wealth, we're the people to see. All right, Deborah, thanks a bunch. Thank you, bro. Roland. All right, folks, uh, don't forget, you want to support what we do here, RollerMarkOnTheFilter.com, having conversations you're not going to get anywhere else. Go to the website. Uh, you can join our Bring the Funk fan club, PayPal, Square, uh, as well as uh, Cash App. Does not matter. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our followers to contribute on average 50 bucks a year, $4.19 a month, 13 cents a day. Trust me, you're not going to get this conversation on MSNBC or CNN or ABC or CBS. This is why we must have black-owned uh, media companies doing that so we can speak to our issues. And so go to RollerMartinUnfiltered.com. All right, folks, I'm going to see you guys tomorrow. I got to go. Have an absolutely great one. Holla! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.